welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McWibby. I'm your host as always. This episode is the last one of the season. We're about to take our holiday break. Very much looking forward to having a little bit of time off from recording new episodes, but very excited to come back with new ones in the near future. So keep an eye on the podcast feed. New episodes coming up soon. Now is the time. If you have suggestions for guests to please reach out, follow me on Instagram at Renoites or send me an email, Connor, C-O-N-O-R at Renoites.com. We're about to be looking for new guests for the next season of Renoites, and I definitely love listener input and feedback on who we should be having on the show. That is very important. I want to make sure the show is what our listeners want from it. So please reach out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on the show. On this week's episode, I'm talking to Mark Robison, the government reporter, local government reporter for the Reno Gazette Journal. That's a new position that is grant-funded and kind of operates outside of the normal structure of the newspaper, so it's an interesting kind of position. And we had a great conversation about political reporting, about local news, about our upcoming elections one week from the day this episode comes out. So obviously very timely stuff. This is not normally a highly political podcast, but if ever there was a time to talk about local politics, I would say the week before the election in an election year is probably a good time for it. So it's great to have him on the show. Thank you very much, Mark, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this season of Renoites, now is the time to maybe consider joining on Patreon. I have a Patreon account that allows listeners to support the show financially. The goal is, and always has been, to make the show financially sustainable. My hope is that I can continue making new episodes on and on and on and on into the future, but that is hard to do when the show costs money and does not make very much money. So if you visit patreon.com slash renoites, you can sign up to donate to the show, even as little as three bucks a month. That's about a dollar an episode. It adds up. It makes a huge difference, and it helps the show continue to exist. So that's patreon.com slash renoites. Special thanks to a handful of patrons who have really gone above and beyond in supporting the show financially. Thank you so much, Sam from the Olson Group, Abby from the Abby Agency, Mike from Downtown Makeover, and Vicky from DJ Trivia, great supporters of the show. Thank you so much. And now, this week's episode, last of the season, with Reno Gazette Journal government reporter Mark Robison. Mark Robison, welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, it's great to be here. So, Mark, you are the political reporter for the Reno Gazette Journal, which is a fairly new position that I think they created either just for you or you're the first one in it. And you've worked as a journalist here in Reno before. So my understanding is that you were a journalist here in Reno for a long time. You kind of left the area and the profession and then came back with this new role at the RGJ. So this first one's kind of a three-parter. Can you just tell me a little bit about your journalistic background, the work that you did while you were away, and then this brand new position that brought you back to Reno? Okay. Yeah. I was a journalist, have been for many years at various newspapers, but I spent most of my career here in Reno at the Gazette Journal. And I worked there for about 24 years and then I had an opportunity to uh, do some nonprofit work, basically helping animal shelters across the state of Nevada save more animals. And then when that sort of ran its course, I noticed that there was an opening at the uh, Reno Gazette Journal. And it's a new position. You know, there had been a, a, a local government reporter, but this one is a little different and it's kind of an experiment and it may not work. But basically, it's a position that's paid for with donations and grants. So the way I kind of have found it helps to describe it because it's, it is it is kind of confusing to understand because we are owned by a, a large corporation named Gannett. 
And Gannett basically, you know, it allows, say, 14 positions at the Reno newspaper. And, and basically they say, you know, do the best journalism that you can do with those 14 people. And I'm the 15th person and they don't pay my wages. The position was created as, like I said, kind of an experiment where I am doing work in the public good. So stories about local government that are of importance to everybody that may not otherwise be covered. And so all of my stories, because they are paid for with grants and donations from people like, you know, who are may be listening to this podcast, all my stories are free. And so, you know, like regular stories on the the rgj.com website, in general, most of them you can read, but you have to sign up for a free account. And then there are some that are premium stories that you have to be a subscriber. But all of my stories, you don't have to do either of those things. They're out there for everybody because I'm being supported by the public. They're available free to the public. And I'm supposed to, you know, n- not worry about, you know, whether I'm, you know, getting a million hits or not. It's just whether it's of value to the public. And so 100% of my wages are paid through those. About half comes from a grant from the John Ben Snow Trust, and and the rest really are donations. So the good news is that that you know when there are downturns in the economy, and especially affect the you know media, you know Gannett has had recent layoffs. They currently have some forced furloughs. Those don't affect me because I'm not paid by Gannett. But the bad news is is that mm. if people don't support it, um, I may have to go away. And so if, if you like what I'm doing, definitely go to rgj.com slash donate and you can help me uh, keep doing the stories that I'm doing. Gotcha. How does that kind of funding affect the reporting that you do? Does it affect the stories that you're able to cover or the way that you report? Do you have the same kind of oversight basically from Gannett about what you report on and how? Or by being a little separate, does it give you a little more independence on how you do your job? Well, I, I would say it's not either of those things. There are certain stories that have to be covered because, you know, there are things that happen in local government where, you know, a city council member steps down and, you know, it requires being done because it's important to the community. And so I do those. And outside of those stories, I do have leeway to what I want to write about, um, the main grant that I receive does have some sort of stipulations in there that in general, I should try to, you know, give voice to people who may be neglected in the community and to uh, bring up issues that may not otherwise be covered. And we can talk about it, you know, as we go on about my sort of philosophy with the job. But in short, I try to, you know, have a, a finger on the pulse of what people are talking about and figure out what questions they're asking of, hey, I heard this, is this really a thing? So I try to look into it and see if indeed it is and how it affects people and try to get all the different viewpoints in there. And just, I want to allow people to make better decisions about their um, political life and the decisions that of who they're going to vote for and, you know, what they need to know about decisions that are being made by the Reno City Council or the Washoe County Commission, and just put that information out there to make them better informed and not try to put any of my perspective in there. Um, Why political reporting? Have you always had a strong interest in politics? I mean, there's journalism of all different types. What makes the political stuff particularly important or interesting to you? 
Well, the political stuff is kind of interesting. I, you know, my technical title is local government reporter. It's just because we happen to be in an election season, which you know affects local government. That I'm I'm doing you know a fair amount of the political stuff. The the politics part of it, the the you know one side versus the other. My team is the best. I, you know that type of stuff doesn't really speak to me, but I. I do like trying to understand what the issues are that people have. When you have those opposing viewpoints, they're focusing on different things. And so it gives you a more rounded perspective when you're looking at what the main issues are for each side and trying to triangulate those into a way that speaks to most people. Right before I left the Reno Gazette Journal in 2017, I had been the opinion page editor for a while. And one of the things that I instituted the last couple of years was that one of my jobs was to write a weekly editorial that sort of gave the institutional position of the Reno Gazette Journal on important topics of the day. And I just didn't like that um, in that, to me, it, it was too limited. And so I put the word out that I wanted members of the community on the editorial board to help inform those decisions and intentionally picked people from all across the political spectrum, far on each side and across the center. We would meet every couple of weeks and we would go over different topics and I would write editorials that tried to, you know, be on timely topics, but that also moved the conversation forward. And I had to get everybody to sign off on those. You know, it would have been very easy to just have columns that were sort of mushy and didn't really take a strong stance. And I didn't want to do that. I found though that having all of those perspectives really made the articles better when we were talking about, you know, too many deaths at the county jail and things like that. And, and, you know, how to approach that, that having all of those perspectives made them stronger and trying to get in all of those viewpoints and concerns in a way that everybody could agree on, I, f I found valuable. And so that's what I, when I came back, I wanted to take that perspective and, uh, and put it into individual reporting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that right now the state of political reporting in this country, like you mentioned, is very partisan, my team versus your team kind of thing. And I think cable news has been a huge part of that where everything has kind of turned into a national issue. And that's where a lot of people get their news. Do you think that people do have access? You're trying to do that here in Reno, but do people have access to kind of like healthy and helpful news or is it all, at least in the big picture, most of the really partisan divisive stuff? I think it's hard to find. I think that when you look at even some of the mainstream media outlets, when you're just scanning across the headlines, if you have a political point of view, you immediately see whether a website, you know, aligns with you or doesn't. And I think it's really subtle and me taking off four years and I basically gave myself a news blackout during those four years. I didn't follow anything. I got rid of all of my news subscriptions. And when I came back, it was much more obvious to me. And I think it had maybe been invisible because I'd been swimming in it for so long, but it's also become a little more pronounced. And it's one of those things where some journalists feel the need to be on the right side of history. And so they're concerned about that. And you can f feel it in the way that there are certain phrases made. What I found is that trying to take, and I, I don't know, this sounds sappy, but I found that it works is that being kind 
to all of the sources and coming at it from that perspective of kindness allows you to sort of not slip in those words that are charged. You know, I'll give you an example. There was a story that was written about Joey Gilbert. You know, he's a Reno attorney, ran uh, as a Republican for a governor in the primary. And there was a story about him that called him, you know, a far right candidate and that he refused to accept his defeat. And his uh, campaign consultant wrote in and just said that he thought that that phrasing was biased. And it wasn't a story that I wrote. Uh, but when I came back and I, and I, I had to write a story that involved him, I just said that he was a Reno attorney. And instead of putting that label far right in there, and instead of saying that he refused to accept his defeat, I said that he refused to concede that he lost. To most people, it sounds almost exactly the same. But if you're Joey Gilbert, those two things are extremely different. He'll agree that he's not conceding that he lost, but that he refused to concede his own defeat feels like there's, you know, a little bit of a jab there if you're him. And so that's the type of thing that I try to do. And in that instance, he felt that I had treated him fairly. And so he gave me an exclusive interview that he was, you know, not going to pursue his voter fraud lawsuit anymore and that he was just going to drop it and, and back Lombardo against Sisolak in the governor's race. I wouldn't have got that if I hadn't have, you know, tried to see things through his, through his eyes. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to do to turn down the heat a little bit in the political discussion. Yeah, I think turning down the heat and stopping all of the constant my side versus your side stuff is really important. But one of the criticisms I know a lot of media gets is both sidesism, this idea that, okay, well, you have to be nice to both sides. You have to give the viewpoints of both sides, when in reality, sometimes it's not that both sides have equally valid points. You know, there's you have to face reality sometimes. So how do you differentiate your kind of approach with having more kindness and understanding and maybe avoiding the jabs with not necessarily treating all sides as if their views or ideas are equally valid or equally true. Like what's the difference between your approach and the often maligned both sidesism? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that is absolutely a thing and believe me, I get that from both sides that I'm, you know, when I first started back at the Reno Gazette Journal in February, my boss was immediately emailed by somebody on the left that I was enabling fascism by talking to somebody on, on the right. And then somebody on the right, you know, wrote into the boss that I was, I don't know, yeah, that I, I was too, I don't know, enamored of the left or I don't even remember what the claim was, but I do get it from both sides. And that is often, journalists like to use that as a badge of honor that, well, I may, might be doing something right. I don't like that either. That that's sort of the South Park view that, that both sides are stupid and what have you. I, mm -hmm. To me, that's nihilistic, and I prefer to look at it as that there are smart things on both sides. It's not that both sides are bad. It's that both sides have worthwhile things to say that we need to look at. You know, I think it's important to call out things that are wrong, but I'll give you an example of how I handle that differently while not succumbing to both sidism. And so bottom line, there was not widespread fraud in the 2020 election. It just didn't happen. The Heritage Foundation, one of the most you know conservative organizations out there is, is really big on including that Nevada is not good for election integrity, ranks 50th on their 
election scorecard and all these different things. You know, I did a long interview with the head of their elections department. And he says that, you know, it, look, it's not a thing. We should all be able to agree on that. There are some people, though, who still insist that the election was rigged in 2020. One of the things that media outlets did right after that was they all got together and said, hey, we're going to call this the big lie. And every time somebody says that, we're going to call it out as a lie. And that doesn't work. Somebody who might sincerely believe it because, hey, look, my president told me that the election was rigged. And so I'm going to trust this person that I put my trust in. And so even if, say, that leader is lying, it doesn't mean that the person who's saying it is lying because lying implies that you know it's wrong and you're still saying it is true. Mm. So bottom line, what I do in every one of those instances, and, and I would have to go back and forth with editors when I first started, when these claims would come up, Instead, I would say the Nevada Secretary of State's office investigated claims of widespread fraud and found no supporting evidence. I say that every single time. What I've found is that I could just say it's a lie, or I could explain how it's been investigated and was found that there wasn't any evidence to back it up. And I link to the document every single time with that investigative report from the secretary of state's office. Um, it's longer. I just think it's less adversarial. People are more likely to listen to it mm. and you want both sides to hear each other. And when you make it that, you know, that you're absolutely wrong, it's going to come back and bite you, you know, like happened with some of the COVID things where, you know, masks are, you know, absolutely must have a mask or else we're all going to die. And okay, well, no, now, you know, it turns out masks, um, you don't need to wear them on the airplane. And so you need to be humble in what you're saying and not so absolute. When you say it in a confrontational way that the person who disagrees with you is stupid, instead of just saying that, hey, this was looked into and people on your side of the aisle, people who were, you know, judges appointed by Donald Trump, the Republican Secretary of State, who was a Trump supporter, looked into this and didn't agree with it that's more powerful than just saying that you're, you know, stupid. <laughs> and so anyway, that's, that's where I come in right. sort of a long winded way of saying it. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you think that local journalism and your kind of more nuanced approach can compete with the national news and internet based news that is more divisive and engineered, I think, to be more emotionally manipulative kind of clickbait stuff. So I kind of think the way you've described a local reporting and the kind you do sounds like the the healthier the the vegetables and the rest of our media, the dominant part of our media is kind of like the junk food. How do you operate competitively in that kind of environment where you have well-funded and very large news organizations that are doling out candy and, and dopamine hits and anger every day, and you have to get people to you know slow down and actually get something a little more nourishing? How do you work in that environment where it feels like there's a lot of advantages for the news that's engineered to be more addictive and more emotionally based? I think there's a huge appetite for uh, not having constant outrage. Uh, you know, there's the, the phrase, the exhausted majority, all of the people who just, you know, cannot get on either side that is just yelling at each other of, of trying to own each other, of trying to not just show that the other side's wrong, but to rub the other side's face in their wrongness. And I just think there's a, a huge appetite because it's exhausting 
to just be angry all the time. And, you know, there are times when I'm covering an event and it is one of those politically charged events. And I go up to people to try to talk with them. They are just unhappy. Their body language, everything is tense about them. It's not a good state to be in for a long time. And I I think it's just one of those up and down things where people are going to realize that a constant sense of anger at your neighbors is tiring and that it's not good for your long-term mental health and that they're going to seek out people that they can rely on, that they feel that, you know, whichever side they're on, that their side is being steel manned instead of straw man. When journalists use a shorthand to sort of describe a position, it is often one side it doesn't capture their position. It captures the weakest version of their position, such as, you know, with parents at school board meetings who didn't think that schools should be closed because children were not as susceptible to COVID and how that it was worse to close schools because it was putting the children behind with their educational development. And that was more troubling than, than any sort of threat from COVID. Those people were demonized as, you know, not understanding the science. They could sense that when people wrote about them and used shorthand phrases to describe them in the media, that they weren't wanted there and they moved on and maybe moved on to places that were not as journalistically sound. So I want to bring those people back in on both sides. I want them both to feel respected and heard in my writing. When one side is wrong, I do want to call them out. You know, I want to know when I'm wrong, but I want to do it in a way that they can hear it. And so I'll give you one more example is that earlier this year, Jeannie Herman, and we'll, we'll maybe talk about her because she's running for reelection in District 5 in Washoe County. She proposed overhauling the Washoe County election system. One of the things she wanted, you know, a return to paper ballots and hand counting. She had this 20 point plan. And another media outlet in town did a fact checker of all 20 points. It, you know, all respect to this media outlet, but it was written in a way that if you were a supporter of Jeannie Herman, it was condescending. And, you know, I overheard people talking about it after it came out in a public meeting setting with dozens and dozens. Well, there, there were hundreds of people, but dozens of people around me talking about it in sort of passing because they hadn't read the story. They, they didn't get past the headline because they felt disrespected before they even got to the story. And out of that same meeting where she proposed that, there was a claim that, you know, there were 40,000 more votes than voters in the 2020 election. I did a fact checker on that. And I did it in a way, I tried to put myself in the shoes of the person making this claim and said that, look, if I had had a data analyst tell me that this was the right analysis of this data, I totally would have come to the same conclusion. And I can see how it got there, but the data actually couldn't come to that conclusion because of X, Y, and Z. I went through the sort of back and forth of me trying to figure this thing out. Of I wrote this and, and here's the response. And, and I was very transparent and open about me trying to come to the conclusion. And it was just done in a way that even if you were a supporter of that viewpoint, you could see that, you know, I tried to give you the most benefit of the doubt I could. People understood that. And I had people who were, you know, from that sort of election denial side agree that, oh, yeah, okay, that makes total sense what you said. 
And that argument was pretty much dropped and you don't hear it anymore. I think there's just a way of approaching it that, again, through kindness of treating other people the way that you would want to be treated in a story. And and I'll, I'll ramble here for one more second. One of the things that influenced me here was Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist. He was writing about a book that he wrote. His last novel was called Resurrection, which is a great book. In the like author's note for it, he said that he didn't want the reader to know which characters he sympathized with in the book. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that's the type of journalist I want to be. I don't want the reader to know which sources I side with. And so I've tried to put that into place. And I think you can see it when I do a fact checker. Yeah. I want to ask you a couple of questions about kind of the unofficial journalism, the the amateur journalism. We're recording this on the first day of Elon Musk owning Twitter and Twitter has driven so much of our political discourse for years now. So where do you think things like that, this kind of amateur politics, this very populist, everyone can weigh in, does that fit into the world of political reporting? And how do you think it should? And do you have any kind of thoughts or predictions about what the the Elon era of Twitter might look like that we're about to enter? I, I have no predictions about, you know, how things are going to go with Elon. I, I did see that Donald Trump says that he's going to stick with Truth Social. You know, I guess we'll see how long that lasts. He he likes to change his mind on things. But one of the things with Twitter is that I think that it's, at least currently, that its influence is very insular. And I don't think most people pay any attention to it. And that it's it's one of those things that journalists and politicians and, you know, some of official agencies that they use pretty regularly. But you go to 100 people, there's maybe five that, that use it and maybe two of those regularly. I don't find it useful. I don't use it. I mean, it's it, it's good to sometimes get a tip of, of something to watch for. And so I do keep an eye on it for that. But as far as driving the conversation, because of the way those algorithms are set up to amplify outrage, it doesn't help my reporting. And, and, you know, one of the things that you find is that, that when you dig under one of those Twitter wars and try to find, you know, what the truth is under it, it's generally not there. There was some grain um, of, of truth in there way back when, but it got lost. And so if you're using it, it's going to distort your view. And if you just want to reinforce your own view, then it's great for most people. It is not a good source of, of news or even conversation. It's a good source for jokes and for making fun of the other side. And I can find better places mm. to find jokes. You mentioned that there's a lot of journalists who are on Twitter. And I think even for people who aren't using Twitter or not engaged with Twitter at all, they're still sometimes affected by it because I think what can happen is something will start on Twitter and then all of the journalists are paying attention to it. And that makes its way into our other mainstream journalistic outlets. So, you know, something starts on Twitter and then uh, the next day it's in the New York Times and then the next day it's in our local newspapers. And you don't have to be a Twitter user to be affected by Twitter driving the stories of the day and the narrative of the day, which I think is kind of challenging. That, Like you said, it's, it's very algorithmic. It is very siloed, right? You go on Twitter and you get put into a algorithm and you only see the things that you agree with. And that seems like a very non-journalistic way to direct what is being talked about when it's basically a computer algorithm that's surfacing the news of the day, which I think can be kind of scary. You know, it, it takes our independent ability to judge what's newsworthy and not out of the picture sometimes. 
So I don't really have a question there, but that's my 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 take on Twitter that worries me a little bit. Well, well, I think that's a good point that you make about it having an effect on the news of the day. And they call it the, you know, hot take where somebody gives their opinion on something that just like instantly happened. And so here's my knee-jerk response to it. It's one of those things, again, where what I'm trying to do is is gonna be slower. And I don't jump on those things because I want to talk to both sides before mm-hmm. I'm going to write about it. And so sometimes it'll take me, you know, a week to get to that thing because I'm not sort of surfing the crest of that outrage wave. And again, I think there's a, a, I think there's an appetite for that. And so that's what I'm going to do. And again, if people want to support me, support me. And, And if you don't, then, you know, that's fine too. And it just depends on what you want in your life is whether you want this sort of news and politics to be your entertainment and your religion, or whether you just want it sort of in the background and that you're going to tap into it when you need to make a decision about something, perhaps voting. But otherwise, you've got your life to live and, and you're going to do your own thing. It's, it's not an all-consuming thing for you. Those are the people that I'm in. And so, yeah, if you're one of those people who's you know constantly refreshing and loves to bang out those inflammatory comments on a Facebook post. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not the reporter for you. Another form of kind of non-professional media, and sorry to make this episode a little bit about me, but <laughs> in doing a podcast that's mostly not about politics. So I've made it a pretty conscious choice to try not to let this show be overly political. I have an interest in politics, but I don't want to again, turn off half of the people who live in Reno because they'll scroll down the list and say, oh, well, this is just not for me. This is you know, for someone else. I want to be accessible and to be listenable by all different kinds of people. And I often regularly say, I told you this the other day, that I don't think of myself as a journalist. I feel like there are people who are trained for that, who are doing that professionally, who are better at it than me. And I kind of take this approach of, I just want to be a curious guy who's having conversations with people. But then I realize that's the exact same argument you get from like Tucker Carlson is defined as entertainment instead of news for Fox News so they can get away with, you know, saying things that are maybe less accurate. Joe Rogan has the same kind of thing like, oh, yeah, I'm just the, just a dude. But then he's nodding along and agreeing with and platforming some pretty problematic stuff. So like how much responsibility do you think amateur journalists or whatever you want to call them should have in regards to more professional standards? What do you think of that difference between the amateur political commentator or general like media person? versus professional journalism? I think it depends on what you want out of your life and what sort of, you know, legacy that you're interested in. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example from my life. So, you know, back in the 90s, the equivalent of a podcast were called zines. And the zines were do-it-yourself magazines, basically, you know, that you'd photocopy and, and send out around the country. And, you know, I had some of those. And they were extremely partisan propaganda-ish. And partisan is probably not quite word because, you know, I was outside the major political parties just, you know, throwing bombs at both of them. You know, that was something that, you know, was meaningful to me then. And I evolved and not saying that there was anything wrong with that or that I am shaming my prior self. That was important for me on the journey that I'm on. But I I think that it's important for the amateur journalists out there to think what they're contributing to the world and, and what they're putting out there. Because 
what you're doing ripples out. You can imagine it for the people who are still working in an office who are, or who have ever worked in an office that, you know, you know what it's like when there's one person in the room who's stomping around, slamming things down, throwing stuff, cursing, how that just ripples into the rest of the room and everybody else is quiet and sort of, you know, doesn't talk a lot and you're trying to avoid the person and just, you know, lay low and that their stress stresses you out and you're rippling that negativity into the world. And then there's the person who you want to be around, who is sort of lighthearted, who, you know, their, their hand is open rather than in a fist and that, you know, you just like their company and they make you smile when they come into the room. So what is it that you want to ripple out into society? You know, there's a time for anger and all of that. And depending on, you know, the the people and their cause, I support it. I guess what, you know, one of the things that I see with that is that imagine if somebody with the exact opposite view of you behaved exactly like you do and, you know, and, and felt as strongly about their position as you feel about yours is what they're doing. Are are you okay with that? And do you think it's, it's having a positive impact? And if it's not, then you need to look at what you're doing. And I'll give you an example from Reno's illustrious past. Reno is, was, was one of the great punk scenes and one of the great internationally influential bands out of Reno was a band called Seven Seconds. They started this thing called Positive Force, and they saw that in in the punk community that it was very nihilistic and that people wanted to just, you know, destroy things and mess things up and that, you know, screw everybody. And they said, no, that we want to be a positive force in our community. And so they sort of started and it led to these different branches of it around the country. And there's still one going, I believe, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, they would do things like you know, put on punk concerts and the, you know, the funds would go to delivering meals to senior citizens and, you know, stuff like that. And so, you know, I have that logo tattooed on my hand and I like having it there because it keeps it top of mind that I want to be a positive force in my community. So that's what I would say to the amateur journalists out there is, you know, figure out what values you want to bring into the world and make sure that the journalism you're bringing into the world reflects that. Yeah, I think that I, I've avoided news and kind of the most current and hot topics and those kind of things. And I do try to take a similar approach of making my brand just be kind of like nice, likable. I know that maybe there are people who are looking for a little more heat in their conversations, and I don't necessarily think I'm the guy for that. But then you, again, sometimes get criticisms for not being as tough as you should be on certain things. So it's always a challenge, I think. But I'm kind of doing a little bit of what you talked about of trying to lean into being being nice being empathetic being understanding if you know that can't be the worst thing in the world if anyone's going to criticize me for being too nice or too easy on people i i'm okay with that let's talk a little bit about some local races local election stuff well i want to talk about the elections first but we did not have an election for the last two open city council seats they did an appointment process i did public comment advocating for a special election and then a bunch of people went to advocate for lily baron for the ward three seat and I was pretty discouraged that it didn't seem like the public input or the, you know, the desires of the people were really heard by council that much. Can you just talk a little bit about what you think about that appointment process and maybe explain a little bit about it to listeners who may not be familiar? So there were two city council members, Neoma Jordan and Oscar Delgado, who have stepped down in the last couple of months. 
the city charter basically says that the city council has two options and they've got to move pretty quickly. They've got like, you know, a week to decide which one of the two things they're going to do. And so they can either decide to appoint somebody or they can hold a special election. You know, there's been four appointments and I, I can't remember how long it's been the last 20 years. There's been four appointments and no special elections. They've said that, you know, well, it costs too much. It costs, you know, like, you know, I don't know, $175,000. Well, I did the back of the math calculations. And if you take that as a percentage of the city's budget and you sort of map it down to the size of a family that, you know, has $100,000 a year income, it costs 20 bucks for the city to run a special election. So they really need to not make that argument. And then the other argument is, is, well, it takes too long. And so that the people in that district are not going to be represented on the council when we're taking votes about, you know, these special things that, you know, affect that district. And I don't buy that either because, you know, the mayor represents the whole city and there's an at-large council member that represents the whole city. They can represent that district in those votes and they can, you know, when there are agenda items that come up that are, are especially affect those communities, they can go out into those communities and talk to, you know, the sort of leaders on the ground, the grassroots leaders and find out, you know, what the pulse is and do it. And, you know, I, I think you make a good point about, you know, the one candidate that, you know, a, a lot of people were pushing. I, you know, I think if a special election were held, she would do great. And I'm not sure that the person who won would have garnered the, the the majority of votes in that district. And then, you know, but to be fair, so, you know, the argument mm-hmm. on the other side is made by, by Devin Reese, who was an appointee. And he says that we want to respect democracy and have voices heard. And that, that when you hold an off-year election, so this would be a special election, not when there's anything else on the ballot. It's just, you know, a few people going up in the race and they've had maybe three months to campaign because, you know, they want to turn the election around quickly. And so the, the candidates may not reflect, you know, who, who the best candidates are because you've got to be somebody who can drop everything and all of a sudden run. And you're only going to get five mm-hmm. to 10% at most of the eligible voters out to vote. And this happened with Michelle Fiore in Las Vegas, where she won with like 5,000 votes in a Las Vegas city council off your election. And that that's not democracy. And that the people on the mm-hmm. council are elected representatives who are supposed to represent the voices of the people. That is one of their jobs is to that when they pick an appointment that they are reflecting the views of, of their constituents. And so, you know, I can see both sides, but even so I, I would tend to err on the side of a special election. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting way for, I think a lot of people to get more engaged in what's happening in city council outside of just elections, because very often I feel like people aren't paying that much attention, but when there's an open seat and a lot of public input opportunity, it really seemed like a lot of people actually paid attention to what was going on in city council there. So it's an interesting last couple of months for sure. In the upcoming races here in next week, which races do you think have potential to have a significant impact on the city? Obviously, there's your mayoral race. I think it's a pretty safe bet that Mayor Sheevy is going to be reelected. I know that she's beat Eddie Lorton before pretty significantly. I don't think things have changed that much that that's going to do anything. So city council probably won't have any significant overall shifts. Are there any particular races in the area that you think are close and that would be 
really impactful based on who wins? Well, so I'll maybe swing back around to the may- mayoral race, but I, I, I think that the Washoe County races, there could be some significance there. And so Washoe County Commission, Jeannie Herman, she has the benefit of incumbency in District 5, and it is does tend to be more of a Republican district. She's the Republican. So it's, it's very possible that she would win just because she is the incumbent and she's won twice before. And so if we assume that she's going to win, which is it's going to be a close one with Edwin Lingar, he's probably giving her the closest race that she's ever had. And Mike Clark is pretty much a shoe in in District 2. He's running against Keith Lockhart, who is not mounting a strong campaign against him. And it is a heavily Republican district. And so he's Mike Clark is likely to win. So those two you know, want to see changes in Washoe County's election system. They want to see the voter rolls, you know, cleaned up more than they have been. And and so the the one race that I, I don't think, I, I'm pretty sure that Mary Luz Garcia in District 3, which kind of covers the downtown area, university area, Sun Valley, it tends to lean Democratic. It's, you know, Kitty Jung was reelected there three times and she's termed out. And Mary Lou Garcia, she's the Democrat. She's running against Denise Meyer, the Republican. Mary Lou's will probably win. But if she doesn't, if for some reason there is an upset there, that would completely change the Washoe County Commission because then you would have a majority of the commissioners who, you know, had concerns about elections, would want to see the Registrar of Voters Office sort of, you know, I don't know if gutted is the right term, but but completely reevaluate the entire election system. And and Jeannie Herman's proposal mm-hmm. that was mentioned earlier of returning to paper ballots and hand counting and you know, you know possibly law enforcement presence at voting centers, that type of thing, would get a serious hearing and could possibly pass. And so District 3 with Mary Luz Garcia and Denise Meyer is an interesting one to watch. Mary Luz Garcia has far and away received the most campaign donations of any of the Washoe County Commission races. And so I, I, it'd be hard for Denise Meyer to win, I, I think, but still there's upsets are possible. And so that's the one I'm sort of keeping an eye on there. What issues do you think that local voters prioritize? I know homelessness is definitely a big topic of conversation in Reno that, you know, national politics speak about kind of broadly, but locally we have more localized debates about how to deal with these kind of issues. Are there other issues that you think local voters pay attention to at the local level rather than kind of the national narratives? So the local issues, some of them tie into the national narrative. And so one of those is public safety. I I think that there's a lot of talk about that, especially in the city council races. There are two aspects to that or three aspects, I guess. So one is just crime. With that, you know, downtown can be sketchy. There's been a couple of recent murders, you know, one just outside the city hall recently. County commission candidate Mike Clark happened to be there when it happened or he heard the shot and ran over and, and, you know, saw the body. It's, you know, one of those things that concerns people of, of being able to walk down there safely at, you know, different times of the day and night. There's also, the street racing or intersection Mm -hmm. uh, takeovers uh, that they call it that have become a thing that 
I, I know, especially in the, the South Reno city council race that, um, that, that both of the candidates have talked about that a lot because it's you know one of those things where there's been a fair amount of property damage and that uh, citizens who have you know tried to go through the intersections when these things are happening have been uh, threatened and their cars damaged and um, there's been damage to, to roads and landscaping and things like that. And then there's homelessness and... I had a conversation with Eddie Lorton, who is running against Mayor Hillary Sheevy for the third time in this interview that I did with him this week. He definitely differentiates himself uh, from Mayor Sheevy, who uh, Mayor Sheevy is big on trying to, you know, give services and find services for uh, people who are experiencing homelessness, especially mental health services. She has, you know, tried to secure funding for 24 seven places that, you know, when, when the police pick up somebody who is homeless and there's clearly some sort of mental health component going on there, it doesn't help to take them to the emergency room because the emergency room just immediately discharges them because it's not a physical um, health issue. It's a mental health issue. And so she has tried to mm-hmm. do things with that. And, and, and I believe there's a, you know, she's secured it for a new facility uh, that will be coming online here soon. But Eddie Lorton to differentiate himself and he's not doing it to differentiate himself, but the, the difference there is that he said that for people who are homeless, that, you know, he is posed to a handout, but he's willing to give a hand up, but that you either need to get in a shelter or you're going to jail. And so he wants to see all of the, the laws enforced for littering, loitering and trespassing that normally are only applied to people who are homeless so, you know, that's a very different thing. And it, it also, um, he ties it in to that public safety aspect. And so, so bottom line, in addition to homelessness and affordable housing, the main topic uh, now seems to be public safety. Uh, in the primary, the affordable housing was a big issue. The city has taken a number of steps toward that and has put some money toward it. And, and also just because of inflation, some of the the housing prices and, and rents are coming down. And so it's it's not as hot a topic as it was. You just moderated a debate you mentioned between Jeannie Herman and Ed Lingar. How did that go? What are the issues that were talked about in that debate? Well, I, I learned something from Jeannie Herman, and she is often portrayed as, you know, thinking that there's widespread voter fraud. And she corrected me during that debate that it's not widespread fraud, that she doesn't have any evidence of that. Uh, but that what she's concerned about are all of the process parts of it, and that she thinks that that people who have concerns about that process haven't been treated respectfully, and that many of those issues, such as the voter rolls and the way that that ballots are handled, deserve looking into. So that was one of those topics. Whereas Ed Lingar, he was that you know, look, there are. Statutes on the book for voter fraud, it's a crime. If you have evidence of that, put it in. And these other things, sure, let's debate them, but let's not tear down the entire election system because um, you haven't liked the outcome of it. Not that Jeannie Herman's doing that, but you know that's how he portrayed the other side. One of the things I thought was another one of the main differences with them was about infrastructure and growth. And they represent um, District 5, which is the North Valleys and Somerset and and much of the rural part of the state. 
you know, Jeannie Herman is that, you know, growth has been irresponsible and that the infrastructure has, has not kept up with it. And, you know, he rightly points out that, well, you've been on the commission for eight years, you know, what have you done? But he also made the point that development is an important part of growth that we're trying to diversify our economy. And so to that, he doesn't think it's fair to criticize, you know, people moving here um, and, and doing all of this sort, sort of fast growth because, you know, Reno is a booming area and that's what we wanted and, and what could be expected from diversifying our economy. And so he wants to you know, roll up his sleeves and get to work with public private partnerships to try to make the infrastructure more concurrent with the growth. They just seem to have a sort of a different, uh, different view there, whereas she just looks at the growth seem to as irresponsible, whereas he thought that, that no, it was completely justified because that's what we were asking for, but that we just need to handle it differently. Gotcha. There's been a lot of recent reporting, both locally and also nationally, about the impact of big money pushing candidates, which you know, if, I would call them fringe candidates. But if we want to be more fair, we'll say candidates who may not have the same priorities as some of our folks here locally. I don't know. Of course, I'm talking about Robert Beatles. Uh, a lot of the election conspiracy and critical race theory and COVID denials, you know, the trans panic, a lot of the candidates pushing those kind of as the major issues trace back to one guy who has said explicitly that he is using money to influence elections in this region. How should political figures and journalists approach things like this? Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, the Beatles effect here in Washoe County? Yeah, I'm not quite sure, you know, what to think of it. I, you know, I've met Robert Beatles multiple times. I, I text with him now and then, and the the negativity that has come into it is seems unprecedented when i talk with people about his approach beatles approach they say that they've never seen anything like it i've not heard anybody who likes it there are a lot of personal attacks there um there are a lot of attacks that don't have much substance when you look under them i fact checked a number of them his franklin project pack had sent out postcards about Bob Lucy running for county commission. Definitely very savvy about how to phrase things of, of putting everything in the form of a question, but basically, you know, implying that, that Bob Lucy was a drug dealer and, you know, all these different things and calling him Bob Lucifer. And it was, it was really over the top. And, you know, when I, I'll, I'll give one example, um, you know, sent out these postcards to basically everybody in the county calling him a racist. I looked into it and, you know, one of the things was that, you know, there's really no evidence of it, but he had Jeannie Herman, you know, saying that she had heard Bob Lucy saying racist things about the new county manager, relatively new county manager, Eric Brown, who is black. She said that it happened during a public meeting. And so I found the public meeting and there was, it, there, there was not even a hint of anything in there. Uh, it was, it was where Eric Brown was, was, uh, selected and hired, uh, to be the County manager. And it just wasn't in there. And she said, well, you know, the video must've been edited. It's an unedited video. It's just, you know, it was a live YouTube video that was then posted there was no editing on it. So, you know, I contacted Eric Brown and he said, no, the guy's great. I love working with him. He's never said anything remotely racist to me. 
it, it's that type of thing that that goes out there where you're planting the seed and it's it's this sort of personal attack with you know nothing to back it up really that has just created this atmosphere where people are I don't know reluctant to engage because they don't want to feel the wrath and so Eric Brown uh, county manager he put forth a proposal that uh, passed the uh, the county commission saying that, the county will pay for legal fees and public relations fees for people who are attacked, county workers, not politicians, uh, but county staff who are attacked in this sort of way. And so there, there was a county official who was named and attacked in one of those, those postcards. And so she would have the ability to tap into this and have it pay for her legal fees, you know, up to, it's like $150,000 a year to try to, I guess mute that, counter that, uh, give help the the workers feel supported. So it's it's definitely a thing, and it's definitely had an effect. That sort of outrage machine, I don't find useful. I don't find it productive. I don't think it helps the community because you know when you paint the other side as evil as Lucifer, I mean, how do you how do you move forward with that? How do you work together? You, I mean, you can't. And so I try to investigate those things, a few of them, because it is kind of like whack-a-mole where you, as, as soon as you knock one down, there's, you know, five more, you know, outrageous claims out there. And so, you know, I, I try to pick mm-hmm. the main ones, the ones that, um, you know, he says that he has the most evidence for and, and, and look into them and take them seriously. But you, you don't want to give it too much oxygen. And so I've, I've tried to stay out of most of the name calling and personal attacks. What else, what did we miss? What else do you want people to know about local politics, about your work in our local politics? What do you think is being undercovered or, or not talked about enough? Well, uh, I mean, there's so many stories that I, I want to work on that I just, you know, haven't had a chance to get to yet. I can't wait to get on the other side of this election to be able to cover some of these things. Um, there's, you know, whether there's mercury in the, um, some of the ponds in South Reno, you know, whether they're safe for people's pets to go into them, you know, there's a new dangerous dog ordinance and, you know, is the Washoe County regional animal services seizing too many dogs as dangerous and putting them down. You know, I want to look into that. The, the number of people who are homeless, uh, people who do not have a fixed address who have died, in the past year is, is likely going to outstrip all previous years this year. I, you know, I want to look into that more. And so there are definitely some important stories out there. There's you know also people who are doing good work out there. I think that the County for all of the grief that it gets about the Nevada cares campus, you know, it was one of those things that was thrown up quickly and they were basically trying to build the plane as they were flying it. I, I think they've finally, gotten to a point where they are getting things stable and, and making some, um, some good, important progress there of, you know, getting some of the services on site and doing things that are going to decrease the number of, of emergency calls to the, to the shelter there. And so anyway, I, I look forward to covering all of these things, you know, once we can get on the other side of November 8th. Uh, so where can people follow you? You mentioned, um, that people can donate. You gave the address for that. You also have a newsletter, right? So how can people stay in the loop with your reporting on what's going on in the area? 
there's a, a newsletter called Greater Reno that comes out every Tuesday morning and it basically rounds up all of the stories that I've done in the previous week and then has some uh, ephemera of different things that uh, didn't make it into stories behind the scenes of, of certain stories. Basically go to any story of mine at rgj.com. There's a, generally a link at the bottom of how to sign up uh, for the Greater Reno newsletter. Or you can email me at mrobison, R-O-B-I-S-O-N, at rgj.com, and you know I'll, I'll get you the direct link. The Facebook page is, uh, if you search for Greater Reno on Facebook, um, it's just facebook.com slash Greater Reno. Uh, I get my posts up there, and so it can be also a way to, to comment on some of my stories and interact with me. I do try to read all the comments on my stories online people ask questions, I try to follow up with them. And so you just want to to rant about um, how stupid and biased I am. I ignore all of those. But if, if you ask a legitimate question of, you know, why didn't you include this? Or, you know, I think that, um, you know, this sounded biased to me. I take those seriously and try to address all of them. I also do ask the RGJ regular articles and they're basically, you know, here's the reader's question and here's what I was able to find. And so I encourage people to write to me uh, with what questions they have. And I would love to look into them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. It was great to talk to you about kind of local journalism stuff. As I said, this is normally not a super political podcast. This is the last episode of this season and it is coming up on election day. So I thought it was a good time to and I dip my toe a little bit into the water of our local politics and was super glad to have you on the show to learn about stuff and to learn about what you're doing for the local political and government reporting world here in the biggest little city. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it's great to be here and I've, I've enjoyed the podcast and I've, I've learned uh, things from a number of your guests. So please keep it up. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites and this whole season. It's been a really great season. I'm very grateful for all of the guests that we had and thankful to you for coming along for the ride, listening to the episodes of this season. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to the next one already. Again, if you have suggestions for guests, please, please, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at Renoites or send me an email, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. Also, huge, huge Thanks to my co-producer this season, Lynn Lazaro. This is the first season that I've had help on the podcast. Lynn is a journalism student at the Reynolds School of Journalism at UNR, and it has been fantastic to have help and support on the show. Lynn has been amazing. So extra special shout out to my co-producer this season, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's all I've got for you this week. That's all I've got for you this season. I have another live episode coming up at the end of November, so please keep an eye on that. I would love to see some of you there at that live taping, and we'll be back with new episodes soon. 